Hi, this is Jesse, and welcome to Red Cloaks Radio. Joining me today are my co-hosts. Hi, I'm Laura Benesti. I'm also with the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, I'm Marta Leticia. I'm with the Boston Red Cloaks. With us today, we have two amazing guests. We're going to be talking about a bill to increase access to emergency contraception. And first, we have Representative Marjorie Decker, who represents the 25th Middlesex District. Thank you. Great to be here with you. I am a state representative from Cambridge and have been working on issues around reproductive rights since I was a high school student. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. Also with us is Joseph Bonacori, who is a senator who represents the first Suffolk and Middlesex, which includes Boston, parts of Boston and Cambridge, Revere and Winthrop. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank the Red Cloaks uh, for sharing their listening audience uh, with Rep Decker and myself. Uh, we're excited to be here today to share some information about some emergency contraceptive legislation that we filed this session. We're so glad you're both here. And we really first wanted to start out by thanking you for what was definitely a historic last session um, in many ways, You know, certainly because of the extension of the time due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But for us and for our listeners, it was really a remarkable achievement to see the work that you both put into passing major provisions of the Roe Act. And we wanted just to step back and first say thank you with our Red Cloak round of applause because um, we know that that was a very uphill challenge and something that many people have worked on for a long time. And we would just love to get your take on what that process was like for you and how it felt to finally see it cross the finish line. And love to start with you, Rep Decker, if that's okay. Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting, you know, what we think of as uphill. I certainly knew that there was a lot of support for this. And I also really have to appreciate who um, now Majority Leader um, Claire Cronin, who was in the chair of Judiciary, who I think, you know, had a very supportive and transparent process around how to engage where legislators are, both personally and politically. And so for me, it's, you know, I felt confident. I've been, you know, where we were elected the same year, so I know her very well and consider her a friend. I felt very confident that, you know, she has had a history of taking on really controversial issues um, or seemingly controversial and gives the members a lot of space to really process their concerns, both with their constituents and with her and the role that she played then as chair. So um, I, I don't think that I was feeling anxious that we weren't gonna get there. I knew that there were challenges, I, I did. And um, I also um, was feeling really patient, right? So um, that we would get there. And I think that it's important to know that in Massachusetts, regardless of what the federal government does, we stand behind women's rights to um, reproductive rights, um, including the right to, um, terminate a pregnancy if it does not make sense for that woman. Um, and that is her choice. So um, I'm, I'm really proud to live in a state um, that has been able to pass this. And whenever Massachusetts is able to really model for the rest of the nation, what good public policy looks like, what it looks like to strengthen and empower um, and keep members of our community safe and allow them to thrive. Um, it's also an opportunity for the, for the rest of the nation to lead and, and that has happened historically. So I'm really proud and excited and thankful for all the work of, you know, including the advocates, um, many of my colleagues who worked really hard on this and, and the leadership that was skillfully brought to, to navigate um, the challenges that some legislators um, had in their districts or personally. How about you, Senator? What was it like from your perspective? I was so proud. I was so proud to support the Roe Act when it passed the Senate and the House to see if he, um, you know, signed into law. Um, you know, I was proud to work alongside, you know, women who have fought this good fight for a very long time. Uh, women like Senate President 
Karen Spilker and uh, President Pro Temp, Harriet Chandler, who have really fought this good fight and, and raised the issue um, time and time again. You know, it's interesting, you, you mentioned there was an uphill battle. And, you know, I think what we've found for reproductive legislation um, on Beacon Hill rings true for other pieces of legislation. Uh, and sometimes how people feel about an issue can really lead to a misinterpretation of the legislation. Um, and, you know, while the la last session, while the Roe Act was being debated in the Senate, I heard from countless individuals concerns about the bill. You know, their concerns were based on misconceptions spread by those who oppose the bill. And we've seen that, I think, the rep would agree in other areas of legislation that we cover too. Um, you know, Twitter can, uh, Twitter's a sword that can, I guess, cut both ways, right? Um, you know, people can get together um, who otherwise wouldn't get together on an issue and really uh, rally, um, you know, pro or con um, regarding an issue. But when we debate really any healthcare issue, it's or really any legislation, uh, it's critically important that we understand and that we communicate the true impact and the intent of the legislation. Uh, and I wanna thank you all for being so helpful and, and to that end, right? Um, I think it's so crucially important as we move forward as a legislature. It's really helpful for us to hear it. The perception I think from inside the state house and outside the state house are very different. So if you come from a local government background, so I worked in my mm -hmm local government for nine years on a board, we're used to an annual cycle. So right away, once you move from an annual cycle to a two-year cycle, it does create something that is very different. We learned recently, speaking with uh, another legislator, that if you're a legislator, you just get used to the two-year cycle. And for people on the other side, you know, it's hard getting time off from work to follow something and come in. And so one thing we've seen from the pandemic is opening up some new strategies for how to communicate with each other. And some of the remote participation, you know, we'll see how that goes going forward, may make it easier for people who want their voices to be heard to stay engaged with you. And, and I know that um, I'm sure you, like the other legislators we've talked to, want to hear people's voices. We want to turn attention to the current session. So we want to talk about the act to improve access to emergency contraception. And if one of you could explain what this is going to do to um, change access to emergency contraception. You know, I filed this bill um, in the previous session, and um, I'm excited to have uh, Senator Boncori join me as a partner in the Senate this session. And really, this was brought to my attention by a younger woman um, in her 20s who was who came across us in her own the obstacles that she faced in trying to access birth control prescriptions. So, you know, and I just think it's important that is often how issues will come to us. It's real life people who see challenges and obstacles that that should be eliminated. That you know, should that government should not be creating barriers to um, to issues, and in this case, to birth control. And so, what this bill does is it really eliminates a lot of the onerous training that is on pharmacists right now. We we have this very odd system uh, of you know, if you're a pharmacist. You have to have a standing order with a physician who you've connected with that allows you to provide, and, and it's kind of like a, it's like a generic prescription that you get from that doctor. And, and that also, by the way, is different for each pharmacist and each doctor who they work with, right? But that allows you to, I believe there's three over-the-counter um, birth controls. Um, the prescriptions that you can access from a physician who has that standing order and essentially that relationship with the physician. There's another birth control that um, women who are over 155 pounds, which, you know, I'll say that's me and a lot of women I know, where you cannot access that with a physician, even if they have a standing order, um, you have to have um, a specific prescription. And really, ultimately, like, 
what are we doing here? Um, why, why are we getting into the weeds around women's access to body autonomy around birth control? And so this really does, it eliminates um, a lot of, I think, onerous and unnecessary and quite frankly, still unanswered regulations around why it is this way. It, um, there is precedent in the law right now for a law that uh, allow, how we allow pharmacists to access Narcan to also help save lives. So it would actually reflect a lot of that, the law that's already in place for Narcan. And one of the things I've come to understand is that there are universities who've set up vending machines that allow students to go and actually quickly access emergency birth control um, and contraception. And right now there's confusion and, and misinterpretation of whether or not the law allows that or not. But honestly, what this really just says is like, we need to, again, understand, we need to remove the barriers and the obstacles that allow women to are the best, the, the most expert in, in how they want to control their bodies and moving forward and, and really get out of their bodies um, and allow them to have that direct relationship with the things that will um, allow them to plan when and if they should choose to have a family. So um, I, I look forward to working on this term. And, um, you know, I think we had a pandemic, so we were able to do a lot, which I thought was pretty amazing given how we had to quickly you know, the, the tiresome, you know, build the plane while we were flying, even as a legislature, we got a lot done that I'm proud of. But this is one of those things that I think, you know, had we not been in the pandemic, we would have been able to do more work on. So I'm excited to get to it this year. Having uh, worked in the past in family planning, I have uh, feelings about the prescription part of it, period. Uh, I think that's another um, just a, a hoop that, that uh, we're being made to jump through. But I wondered if you could explain a little bit more about what a statewide standing order means. Statewide standing order basically, you know, gives the green light to pharmacists that they can go ahead, that this is, you know, women, that it's legal to access birth control and allows them. And in this law, it would actually allow them to have access to all of the birth controls, including the one that um, requires a prescription currently. And I, I think with you as well, getting to the heart of, I have to say, right, if these laws were constructed by a majority of women, I don't even, this is not what it would look like. And, and that's just the facts. And so this really does, it removes a lot of the burdens and it also ensures that every pharmacist has, has, has equal access around their ability to dispense this. And right now it's pretty onerous and there's a lot of burdens put on pharmacists to individually take the initiative to go through the training, to go through what training, right? I mean, the training for what? To decide whether or not this is the right prescription for this woman. Well, we already know there's, there's a limited, there's only four right now, including the one that you need a prescription. And so I, I think, you know, again, as more women are uh, elected and as we have incredible partners like my colleague, Senator Bon Corey, who really do um, take the time to, you know, deeply appreciate um, reproductive rights and what it means and who step up, you know, we need to see more of that go, but it's pretty arcane. What do you see as the obstacles to getting this passed? I don't see any obstacles right now. I'll let you know. Um, you know, they will. those obstacles will reveal themselves. Some of them may not be surprising, but right now, you know, we're, 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 we're at a, a blank slate until people come forward and um, start opposing this. I'm not going to identify any obstacles. I'm going to assume that, you know, we're going to move forward. Do you see any other states who have done similar legislature around stuff like this that we can model? There are nine other states that currently do this, and I think um, three of those actually probably model the best of what it means to allow pharmacists to dispense emergency contraceptions without physician prescriptions under a state-approved protocol. Hmm. Um, and, and those are, I can just say, those are California, Maine, and New Mexico. 
So I have a question. You said that you are trying also to the pharmacies to get the knowledge to do the prescription and all that. But are also our representatives, our people in the government being educated about how these things would work and about how it would help a woman so they can legislate correctly for the woman that is in need of these procedures? You know, I think uh, it's a good question, Martha. I think education is critically important for all issues, particularly when we're talking about healthcare. I think it's important to understand that reproductive health is just as important as every other aspect of healthcare. And as legislators, we really have a responsibility to reduce barriers to healthcare. Um, you know, I can even say as, you know, as a male legislator, I have that responsibility. You know, even if it's knocked over my head time and time again by my seven sisters, um, you know, that women are here and, you know, they have access problems um, to these types of prescriptions. Like, you know, it just doesn't make sense uh, from an equity standpoint that you have certain contraceptives, emergency contraceptives that work better uh, for certain uh, for certain women, w women with a higher body mass index, um, they work a lot for a longer period of time, you know, five days after unprotected sex, rather than just a day after unprotected sex, um, you know, and they're not accessible uh, for no other reason than, you know, it's just not on the list. Uh, so sometimes when we, we get too in the weeds on this stuff, but to think about it from a common sense um, standpoint um, and just to have these conversations, like, you know, if I didn't have seven sisters and uh, my chief of staff and two other women on my staff who, you know, as we were going through our bill filings where I was like, you know, what do you think? What, what do you want to see happen this year? And my staff pointed out, well, you know, th there are issues around um, emergency contraceptive that we're not comfortable with. And when they broke it down for me in a common sense way, it just made sense to do this. And I think, you know, education is important and letting legislators know how common sense this is can have really good effects on what the outcomes are. You know, there is a sense in the legislature, I will say, to take up an issue and then move on from that issue and not come back to that issue for a couple sessions. And I think, you know, when we passed the access bill in 2018, again, under the leadership of uh, Senator Chandler and others, there was a sense that, hey, you know, we did it, <laughs> you know, let's move on. But I mean, you know, I think it's important that we're educating legislators to understand that there's so much work to be done in this fair, because I'll admit it for too long, the legislature has been dominated by males, right? And typically white males, um, you know, who probably aren't thinking about these issues in that way. Um, but I want to let you know, I am. It would be great if one of you could explain the access bill. And also my understanding is while it was great to see it pass, there are some challenges to implementation. The access bill um, in some nation is a bill that made birth control um, co-pays free. Um, so it's, it's an access bill, um, a lot like this bill to, to birth control. With most bills, after we take them up, implementation can be difficult um, and how we go about that. But And sometimes we can't rely on regulators to regulate um, you know, what's right. So we have to take another look at it in the legislature. I appreciate that because um, I think something that is maybe an important part of looking at legislation is what it's called. And so when people think about emergency contraception, what does that mean? If you can't get your access to birth control, you're more likely if you're having sex or if someone rapes you to be in a situation where you now need emergency intervention so that you do not remain pregnant. I'd love to dig in if we can a little bit in something that's come up for us 
speaking with many people, which is the influence of or the prominence of the Catholic religion in the state. And so that can be a little bit of a challenge for some of us speaking to our relatives, at least for me, for half of my family, talking about even contraception at all. So for some people, it's obvious. And for some people, they're really opposed to any form of contraception. Is that something that you feel like you get feedback about? You know, I guess a couple things. One, representing the, the city of Cambridge, no. <laughs> um, that is not like most of my constituents, um, even if they are Catholic as I am. I do think though, what that speaks to is again, the incredible importance of removing as many obstacles from women, period, so that women are in charge of their body and their health and their relationship with their provider. And the more you remove those obstacles, which this bill is exactly about doing, removing more obstacles, the less that becomes a concern. I can tell you that I, I was a legislative aide at State House over 20, over, well, over 20 years ago. And one of the things that inspired me um, was the fight to ensure that state employees could actually have birth control covered. And Representative Sally Karens was one of my heroes then, and then left. Um, she, she left the state house, decided at that point she wanted to leave to go raise her family that she was starting, and has now come back as a new state rep. So I'm really excited she's there. But when I think about sort of where we are with these issues, it's not a secret the Catholic Church has, you know, has a large presence in Massachusetts and has a voice in, in politics. And, and a lot of that voice, I got to tell you, I, I appreciate when it comes to the anti-poverty work that I do. So, but I think I, I don't hear them opposing this. I, I know others do and have different kinds, other, my colleagues have very different constituencies where that is very loud and very organized and which comes down to, if you make this about women's autonomy um, in their relationship to their health, Right? We say reproductive health as if that is somehow separate from the health of my lungs, of my heart, of my eyes. And when we focus on just health, then I think it becomes harder to allow those other kind of, any kind of stakeholder voices to interfere. But, but Joe, you may have a different experience. There are many issues and where identities and experience uh, inform views on politics. Certainly, you know, the Catholic Church is prevalent in my district of, you know, you know Revere, Winthrop, um, you know, East Boston, um, you know, a lot of Irish Catholic, you know, Italian Roman Catholic uh, individuals living here. You know, and the Catholic Church has been very helpful, and that's gone very a long way and on issues of poverty, on issues of housing, on issues of criminal justice. And I haven't heard a lot of opposition to this at this point. I mean, the Roe Act uh, was a very different story. They were, the, the church was loud on it. I'm a Catholic, practicing Catholic. And, you know, there was definitely some looks, uh, you know, before and after church in my way. But when we undertake policies, we must consider their impacts on patients. And that's what this is. This is a, this is a reproductive healthcare issue, but it's a healthcare issue. And the people we're talking about are patients and creating access for patients is something that I can stand by and, you know, stand on. And we get elected to do what's right, not what's popular and not what's popular among, uh, you know, a very small but loud group, um, you know, in church or Twitter or anywhere else. I mean, you know, we get elected to do what's right. And, you know, when we're talking about patients' access um, to medication, like, you know, that's what's right. That's what we can do. And that's, if those, are, if you want to call it being barriers to break down, then, you know, let's break them down. Thank you for saying that. And we're behind you 100%. <laughs> 
And for people who are listening, if you want to look up the legislation itself, um, it's called an act to improve access to emergency contraception. And in the House, you look under HD 2536, 2536. And in the Senate, you look up SD 1595 or 1595. And the legislation is very readable. It's short. It's uh, it's amending the law to provide, as Rep. Decker said, the this standing order that would allow any pharmacist to fill the prescription. Are there any ways that you would recommend people get involved? What are things people can do to be helpful and supportive? I think the most obvious thing is reach out to your state rep and your state senator. Let them know this is important to you. Ask them to sign on to the bill. Ask them to advocate for the bill, to testify when the bill goes to committee. And if they're really inclined to support the bill, ask them to write an opinion piece in the local newspaper about why this bill is important. That might not be possible for everybody, um, who's balancing, you know, districts that have very mixed views, but for those who can to do that. And, you know, but I think it's always, you know, from my experience, which is, you know, well over 25 years from when I was an aide to where I am now, it continues to be true. Five to 10 constituents personally emailing you. And I, I think there's a difference for me. I will say it's great that organizations play an important part of advocating, but I look at individual emails differently than ones that have been sent massively by an organization where they hide the email address of my constituent and then want me to respond to them through a third party. Those, I, I, I read them, but they, just so people know that that gets less of an attention than five to 10 individuals taking the time to either call me or personally email me. Um, and it matters. And, and I, I think that doesn't change. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think we, you know, we always recommend reaching out to your elected officials that represent you. And keeping in mind, you know, when people run for office and come to the legislature, they're typically masters of a couple issues, um, but they're, you know, I wouldn't say they're lost on all the other issues, but they may not have the best understanding on, on every issue, right? I mean, no one really can. So, you know, educating your electeds um, on, you know, what, what this bill really does and what the true meaning and intent of this bill is uh, and just educating them on like how common sense it is uh, just to provide greater access to patients and um, in this fair and, you know, sharing your story, like as representative chairman Decker was saying, I mean, I think that's so important. And in my time, in the legislature, that's what's had the most impact. These are tougher issues to share your story on. So I appreciate, you know, any woman who comes forward with the courage and, you know, to tell me their story, you know, it goes a long way. You know, if you're ready for that, you know, I, I really would hope, you know, you're encouraged to do that um, because I really think that really goes and has the most impact on the legislators you're talking to. Yeah, I would agree, Joe. I think storytelling is something that's always important, but I would say to women also, particularly when it comes to our reproductive health, right? you don't have to also share your story in order to still share your expectation with your with your legislator. I think this is one of those areas that's a little bit more sensitive, right, for some people. And I think if you can, great. That is absolutely what pulls us collectively. But you also just have, you know, should feel empowered to call your rep. And I think Joe's right, ask them, do you know about this? Because we don't, we don't know about every issue, even ones that we probably would care about until someone brings it to our attention, including constituents. Um, but they should still feel empowered to still expect and hope that they would support this. 
I, I just want to thank both of you for taking the time to, to come and talk to us. And I, I think that you have been so eloquent and, and clear with what this means and helping people understand and also giving us regular people something to do. So thank you very much for coming and talking with us. Thanks for having us. And we appreciate it as much to you. Too. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com and have a great day.